Um, today I'm going to actually do our last, our last um, preach in the series on our DNA. The DNA we're speaking about is the DNA of our church. It's what we believe. It's uh, what, if you're joining us this morning and you may be a first-time visitor or you've been coming for a little while, this should hopefully have been an incredibly helpful series for you figuring out, is this the place where God is calling me to be part of? And um, that's the DNA. If you've been with us for a long time, it's a great reminder of what we do and what we believe and why we do that. So this morning I'm going to finish off by speaking on leading together. So we're going to speak about leadership, and I'm just going to make four really simple points from Scripture around leading. And so I had to debate in my mind this week when I was going to preach on this, whether I go really practical and speak about how we kind of structure it at One Hope and elders and deacons and all of that. And I was really tempted to do that, but then I really felt prompted to rather go for the heart of, of what, what is what do we look for in leadership? What is the heart of a leader in this church? And so I'm going to go after that, and Yoke's are intelligent enough to join the dots as to what that would then outwork its way into a One Hope community, because I don't have time to do all of that. So let me ask you this question as we start. Who's the toughest person you ever, ever had to lead? If you're in any kind of leadership position, I want you to get somebody in your head, don't jab your wife or your husband or... Who's the person, I want you to get a picture in your mind, this is the person who never does what you ask. They never do what you ask. They're always complaining when you ask for more. Have you got someone in your mind? I hope the picture in your mind is yourself. I hope that's you. Paul says, right, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the time. I can't. I'm the hardest person to lead. And you can say that of, of yourself. And you can say an amen if you agree. Or if, there we go. And that's really the first point I'm going to be making this morning, is that leadership begins with me. We so often think of leadership and we want to lead others and who am I going to lead and what greatness. And we, we see ourselves in, these, in this grand way as we're this leader of thousands of people. Leadership begins with me. This is the first thing that I want to say. If you, if you want to lead, if you're anything like me, if you want to lead better, you want to lead others better, what, what do you do? If you're like me, your default is to think about strategy, to think about how do I lead people better? How do I invest my energy toward people better? Whereas actually, I think the wisdom question is, if I want to lead others better, I need to lead me better. I, lead, I need to lead myself better if I'm going to lead others. So there's a beautiful story which I think illustrates this in the Word of God. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's the story of King David, perhaps the most famous king of the Old Testament. And the story is that he's got this city, it's called Ziglag, and he's out with his fighting men and they leave their wives and they leave their children in this fortified city and they go out and they do their man thing. But when they come back, the city's been sacked, their wives and their children have been taken captive and we'll pick up in verse 4. So 1 Samuel 30 verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. These are army men. They're pretty upset if they're doing that. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. I think in the corporate world you could call this a bad leadership day. People want to kill you for 
a decision you've made, a way you've led them. They're angry. Something's gone terribly wrong. This is a bad leadership day. And then this beautiful little verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, my, when I read that story, my temptation, if I was facing what David was facing in this moment, my temptation would be them. How do I get this situation under control? How do I speak to that person or talk to this person to help them really understand the way it went down? I would be thinking them, leadership there. David thinks leadership here, leadership here. He's thinking, how do I strengthen myself in the Lord, my God? Do you have an ability like that? Is my question this morning. If you're an aspiring leader, if you're a husband trying to lead his home, if you're a businessman, if you're a businesswoman who's trying to lead your group or your company or even just the team that you're in charge of, if you're trying to lead them in a godly way, have you learned the art of strengthening yourself in the Lord? How are you doing on self-leadership? So I think when, when we think church, Christian leadership, scriptural leadership, we can't escape this. This is where it begins. It doesn't begin in the public sphere. It begins in the private sphere. It always has and it always will. So help us God in the church setting happen first privately. I love, I love this text. I think it's a self-leadership text. It's not specifically but I like reading it like this. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 is one of my favorite texts. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, the, the new NIV says, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, like varied types, you know, like different kinds of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The only person I can see being able to fulfill what James is calling for here is a person who is phenomenally strong in self-leadership. How do you consider many difficult trials a joy? How do you, how do you see with the right perspective? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and you're looking at it, and you're saying, God, this is so hard in the moment, this is so tough. I wish with all of my being I was out of this test. But there's a self-awareness that you say, God, but I know that what you're doing here is preparing me for there. And I've been praying for there. I've been praying for what you want to do. And this is some of the preparation that's taking me there. So God, I'm going to, I'm going to consider this joy. I think there's self-leadership all over that. I think one of the, one of the main keys of self-leadership is this little word, Perseverance. Just keep on doing the ordinary, day after day after day. These are the faithful ones who later on in life, you'll see they're the ones who've invested. They're the perseverers. Or we could go to Galatians 5 and we could speak about the fruit of the Spirit and how you lead yourself in, into this thing with the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. My point is this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, one hopers, visitors, wherever you are this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, are you growing in character? Is the character of God growing in you? Are disciplines taking root in your life? What does it look like? Paul says, when I was a child, the Apostle Paul, when I was a child, 
I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And that's good when you're a child. That's beautiful. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Has this happened in your life? It's not an age thing. If you're still staying at home with your Spider-Man duvet and playing video games every free moment you have, this hasn't happened yet in your life. And if you're over the age of 15, it probably needs to start happening. All right? Have you recognized that you will be your greatest leadership challenge? Uh, Pete used to say this phrase. I'm sure he started from a book. I, I, I credit all these things to Pete because he was like my, my hero when I was like 19. And the more, more I'm reading, the more I realize he stole tons of stuff. And I see like this quote and I was like, oh, Pete says, Pete says, no, 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 Gordon McDonald says. Or like, you know. But he used to say this thing. So I, st- I haven't found this one yet. So maybe this is original, Pete, if you ever hear this. But he says, not even the devil can stop you like you. Not even the devil can stop you like you. We are our own worst enemies. It's not your wife. It's not your husband. That's not why you aren't fulfilling your call in God. It's not your boss and how unreasonable he is. It's not your parents and how unreasonable they were. Some of them might even be passed on already and we're still living with this this expectation of the words they spoke over our lives. Not even the devil can stop us like we can stop ourselves. So how are you doing on self-leadership? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The second thing I want to say around leadership is, I'll call it, and you'll see why in a moment, remarkably unremarkable. Remarkably unremarkable. Turn to Timothy 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, this is a text speaking specifically about elders. If you don't know what elders are, they are the people who would lead or guide in a church context like this. These are the people who God has ordained through Scripture. If you go and read that he said, these are, the guys and, these are the guys I want to look after my church. And if you go and read the context of 1 Timothy, which is not what I'm preaching on today, but the context of it is that there's this, this huge war going on inside of the Ephesian church. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, if you go back and look in Acts chapter, I think it's 18, 19, or 20, somewhere over there, you'll see that Paul prophesies years and years before and says to says to the Ephesian elders on the beach as they're praying, he says, out of your ranks, out of the people here, it was just elders, out of these people here will rise up wolves that will distract the flock. And, and, and Timothy, it seems like that's being fulfilled. If you go and read 1, 1 Timothy 1, you'll see that that's exactly what's happened. People are pulling with false doctrines and whatever else and pulling them out, and it looks like it's the elders. And so Paul rightly is writing to Timothy and saying, hey, refresh, this is what elders are. This is what it looks like, right? Here's God's idea of who should be leading his church. So we'll zoom in on elders, but it's a bigger leadership issue, and we'll zoom out again to leadership. So let's go. Verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, another word for bishop, another word for elder, all the same word, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. Therefore... An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? A.K.A. 
self-leadership leads to church leadership. If we cannot lead ourselves well, if we cannot lead our own family well, we are not qualified to lead in the house of God. He must not be a recent convert, it carries on verse 6, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me ask you a series of questions about this text which will help unpack it for us. Which of these characteristics, and I'm asking you for a response, which of these characteristics are based on giftedness? Have a look. I heard someone say one. Kathleen's saying it's all character, it's not gifting. Ollie's saying there's one, perhaps, teaching. Maybe that's the one that's, if there's any kind of gift there, it's teaching. There might be one more with hospitality. Some would say that hospitality can be a, a unique gift or a, or a special gift. Right, but isn't it remarkable when you look at Paul writing to his protege Timothy saying, these are the men I want you to appoint as elders in the church of God. He doesn't go after gifting. He doesn't go after charisma. He doesn't go after personality. He goes after character. Let me ask you a second question. Which of these characteristics would be celebrated today in the corporate world when we look at leaders? Sober-minded, the company you invest in, you hope. But can you see how immediately we realize how far we've shifted? Where even some of these characteristics which here are explicitly saying you can't be an elder with these characteristics. We'd love some of those, man. Lover of money? Is that a big problem? Someone's ambitious, wants to make lots of money in the business world. And we're like, hey, come, can I go in business with you? You're going to make me rich. Vastly different. And then we ask you one more question. Which of these characteristics are not required of every single Christ follower? Look through that list. Is there anything that you're exempt from? Again, perhaps teaching, because I think here it's referring to a public space. But I think every single one of us as Christ followers in some way, shape, or form are taught to teach. Whether it's our children, whether it's disciples, we can't get away from making disciples. You can't do that without some form of teaching. The only one that I can really legitimately say I think you can escape from is the one that says that you've been, you've been um, married. You've been saved for a, for a short period of time. That's just a period of years. If you've been saved for a long time, then, then you kind of escape that one. The rest of them are normal, everyday Christian characteristics. That's why I've stolen this phrase from D.A. Carson. I'm going to read a quote in a, mo in a moment. He says they are these qualifications are remarkably unremarkable. Let's read his quote. I think it's so profound. D.A. Carson is an author, a preacher, a theologian, generally just a great guy, kind of guy who wins all the prizes at prize giving. Um, <laughs> so, just current context, you know, this time of year we got our kids prize giving and there's always one kid you just wish that, just like put him at the front, call out all his prizes and give them to him and he can push off the stage and you get home like 45 minutes earlier, you know? It's like the kid goes around and around. Anyone been in these prize giving, you'll know what I mean. D.A. Carson is that kind of guy. This is what he says. 
In some respects, and he's commenting on this text in Timothy, in some respects, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there's nothing about superior IQ. Donald Trump. Charisma. Powerful personality or the like. The Christian minister is supposed to be gentle, not supposed to get drunk and so forth. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Indeed, with only a, few, with a couple of exceptions, all of the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. For instance, the elder is supposed to be given to hospitality, but that is demanded of all Christians in Hebrews 13. What this means then is that the Christian pastor must exemplify in his own life self-leadership. In his own life, the virtues and graces that are demanded of all the people of God. There are only a couple of entries here that cannot be demanded of all Christians, viz. not a novice and able to teach. Everything else is the responsibility of all believers, not just the pastor of believers. Isn't that great? Just me? Isn't that great? I know it's December, right? But come on. Okay. Here's my larger point. It's not just elders who qualify scripturally in, in this way. This is the beautiful part about Christian leadership. God doesn't look at what the world does. So you think about David and Samuel, who rocks up and his father Jesse, and he says, right, bring me your sons. God's told me one of them is going to be the king. And as son after son comes, Samuel keeps saying in, in his heart, he keeps saying, oh, this must be the one. This guy's huge. Look at his biceps. This guy's fantastic. Looks like he's gifted in this or gifted in that. And then the Lord says this profound little verse, if you go and read the text. He says, Samuel, I don't look at the things that man looks at. I look at the heart. I get behind it. And we're so schooled in giftedness. Let's make the most gifted person the leader. The best cricketer, make him the captain. The best, the loudest, whatever it is. God doesn't look at what the world looks at. And that's a great comfort to some of us struggling with giftedness. God, I'm not the most gifted person in the room. Great, I'll pick you. Corporate leadership does not teach us this in any way, shape, or form. It's just entirely based, almost entirely based, let me be fair, almost entirely based on delivery, delivering results. You're on your sixth wife, but your share price in your company is rising? Great. No problems. You, you're climbing over others to reach the top. You leave a trail of destruction in your wake? Great. We, we love ambition. And on and on we could go. But in God's leadership, those who cannot lead themselves do not qualify to lead His people. And then at exactly the same time, because we're speaking about character, we're speaking about integrity, we're speaking about disciplines, we're speaking about these things where Paul says, things I want to do I find myself not doing, the things I don't want to do I find myself doing, and we all have this wrestle inside of us. Are any of us qualified, God? Can any of us lead your people? Shouldn't we all just stay at home? At the same time, it's wonderful to read the Scriptures and feel the washing of grace as we read about David, the same man who wrote the Samuel 30 text that we, the, the, the story is about. He didn't write it, but the story is about him. There, that same man who strengthened himself in God in another moment of weakness. He sees a woman bathing on a roof. It progresses. He sleeps with her. Then he kills her husband. And yet God still uses him. 
and our Messiah comes through his line. Or we can think of Peter in the Bible denying Jesus. I'll never do it. I'll never do it. He denies Jesus three times, and then three times on the beach, Jesus speaks to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Why do you think you asked him three times? Because Peter denied him three times. So he denied him three times, so Christ is confirming three times, Peter, do you love me? And the third time, Peter's grieved. He says, Lord, I know. You know that I love you. I'm so sorry, God. And God pours out grace. And he becomes this incredible, powerful minister of the truth of God. Think of Saul, who became Paul, persecuting the church. And over and over, you could go and you could look at how God pours out grace. So I'm not saying, let's come perfect, batteries included, you know, downloaded from heaven. I'm not saying that at all. We are flawed. We are faulty. We're the first. You guys hear us week in and week out speaking about our own vulnerabilities and our own struggles as parents and husbands and wives and all sorts of other areas of our lives, right? You know this. But it's just so helpful to be reminded because in our moments we think, man, everyone else has got this together except me. Everyone else gets up at 5 o'clock for their quiet time. Everyone else never sleeps through their alarm. Everyone else, this or that or that. The third thing I want to say this morning is don't fall off the horse. It's a great lesson. Don't fall off the horse. Have you ever noticed how Christians tend to overreact to leadership extremes? All right, so here's, here's the two that I see going kind of like cyclically on and on through the church. You get a leader... And he sins or falls because he's human, and that often happens. Or I think the whole church way, the Western church is gearing is more and more celebrity status. So these guys get more and more profile, and then they fall. And all of a sudden, everyone in that church never wants to have a leader over them ever again. Right? Anybody been hurt by leadership in the room? Hands up. I'll put two up. All right? So that's the one side. And the other side, we... We have this kind of idea that if you really are diligent and you really mature in God, the, the pinnacle is leadership. It's like the reward. And this for me is the other extreme where we see maturity in God as leadership. And yes, sometimes maturity in God does lead to leadership. We're going to speak about that in a moment. But Luther compared this tendency to fall off the horse. He says, he says it's like people... Luther compared this tendency in people to overreact to a drunkard falling off his horse. He says it's like a drunkard who falls off the left side of his horse, he gets back up in the saddle, and then he falls off on the other side of the horse. And I think this, this thing is in play when it comes in church leadership. It's, it's so important, but we can't make it too important. We can't fall off. Are you following me? I'm, I'm bumbling this part a little bit. Are you following me? Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Ollie. Anyone else? Anybody else following still with me? So I've seen this work out in places where I grew up, especially um, where there's now this leaderless group. You know, we're, we're averse to leaders. We're, we're allergic to leaders. We're just going to be leaderless. Do you know what's so funny? Is looking in, it's pretty obvious who the leader is. There's always a leader. It doesn't matter if you don't give them a title. They're still leading. Right? And so there's, there's these two sides. And I, I want to I contend for something of a, of a middle road, something of a, of a balanced road. Don't overstate the value of leadership, but don't underestimate or understate the value. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this, 
When I think about leadership through Scripture, the, the word that would come to mind more often than anything is blessing. It's blessing. God intends godly leadership is one of the greatest blessings to His community. So you think about it, even if you go and read in Judges and Samuel and in the books of the, and Kings in the Old Testament, you'll see the people begin to cry out to God. They're in great distress. They've sinned. Something's going on. Armies begin to invade them. You know, it's like, it's like the story's on repeat, right? What does God do? What does He do every time that they cry out to Him in great distress and they start fasting and repenting? What does He do? He sends them. A leader. It might be Deborah, it might be Gideon, it might be Moses, but in some way, shape, or form, God says, I hear your cry, I'm going to send you a leader. What does he do when he hears the cry of human crying, the brokenness of our hearts, and we say, God, we just, we can't measure up. What does he do? He sends Jesus, the ultimate leader, the servant leader, the one who redefines everything we understand about leadership and lording it over one another. But we fall off the horse on this side, and we fall off the horse on this side, and on the other side, and God intended leadership to be a blessing to His people. So here's, here's two sides to it. This one side, this really, really, really helps me when I think about leadership, is Romans 12. I've been going on about it a little bit in the last few weeks, because I've been spending time here and just loving it, but it's so important to be reminded of the body of Christ. This is a metaphor Paul uses all through his letters. Again and again, he speaks about the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And this came very visually to me yesterday. I was, I was building a um, kind of big three, three meter by three meter doll's house thing for when Annabeth comes home. And I, I was up above my head with, a, with an electric drill with a screwdriver tip on it. And I was drilling a screw about that long and the screw snapped or bent or whatever happened. And my hand was up there and I was doing it and it slipped and went right on my, you know, this little part of your nail, right? And then last night when I was going through my notes, I was sitting there. What do you think was going on? Do you think I could concentrate? My thumb was killing me. This is part of my body. And even though it's my thumb, I couldn't concentrate. This, you know like when you get that throbbing, that like deep pain throbbing. So I had to go and you know the needle trick, right? With a candle and a needle and just through the nail and, and the relief of that moment. Anyway, my point is, <laughs> any of you haven't tried it, it's great fun. Hit your finger with a nail just to have that moment where you can relieve the pressure. You haven't lived until you have. But my, my point is, the same as what Paul in the Bible is trying to make is that we are a body, each part indispensable. Now listen to this Romans 12. So this is to help us stay on the side of, to stay on, not to fall off the horse on the side of um, leadership is everything. We must all be leaders. Leadership is maturity, that kind of thinking. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in the body in Christ, and individually members of one another. I wish every Christian could have this verse blazoned in their minds, permanently in front of them, this verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace of given to us, let us use them. Having gifts that differ. If prophecy 
in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, or another word for encouragement or preaching in his exhortation, the one who contributes or gives in generosity. If God's given you a gift of making money, give away lots and lots. The one who leads with zeal. One of the other versions says with responsibility or with consideration. The one who act, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Man, I, I love being in the office with Rob's. I don't know where Rob's is. It's kids. Um, Rob's has got an acts of mercy gift. You can't talk about anybody. And I mean, I, I don't think I've seen one exception to this rule where you talk about anybody who's going through a tough time and Rob's doesn't well up. I don't. I'm supposed to be your pastor, but I'm just admitting. <laughs> you can tell me your stuff, but it doesn't make me cry very often. Rob's does. Why? Because God has given us grace because the body needs different gifts. It needs a thumb and a brain and a foot and every other part of the body. And this is an incredibly helpful thing, Christians, to remember. I could preach for days on just this one topic of how we compare ourselves to everybody else around us. Man, forget it. Gifts that differ. God looked at Ali and Johannes and said, I'm going to take a dollop of grace and I'm going to put it in you and I'll put another one in you and you're going to have certain gifts and you're going to have certain gifts and it's going to bless my people. And one of those gifts, just one of them, is leadership, which is meant as a blessing for our good. So that's the that's the one side. And then on the other side, we can't escape that Scripture very clearly elevates and calls out a lot of... I'm really struggling with my words today. It is December, right? <sighs> scripture clearly teaches us the value of leadership. So if you look at verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. It's the word for correct, rebuke. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. How's that falling on your modern ears? It's a struggle, right? Respect those who labor among you and are over you. Admonish me. Hebrews 13 is another great text. There's two verses here. One in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Follow them. Look at how they're raising their children. Raise your children in a similar way. Ask them questions. Look at how they're conducting their marriage. These should, there should be living examples in the community of people who have lived out, leaders who have lived out their lives. And I'm not just talking elders. I'm talking leaders, life group leaders, area leaders, whatever it is that we can look at and say, God, help me grow in that grace. This is perhaps the hardest one, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That little word, obey, is four letters for a reason in our culture, right? It's like a swear word in our culture. I realized something really profound about this obey your leaders. I don't think many people, modern people, will do this at all. I really don't think so. I think that people will agree with you 
And if they agree with you, then they will do what you ask them to do. That's not obedience. That's agreement. The minute that you have to obey is the minute that someone says to you, I want you to do something and you don't feel like it's good. You don't feel like this is what I feel like doing right now. So the minute you ask to obey is when someone says to you, hey, do you know that Scripture says that although that woman is beautiful and she's like everything you wrote down on your list of what you want in a wife, she doesn't follow Jesus, therefore you shouldn't be marrying her or dating her. Hey, now I disagree. Now we see whether obedience kicks in or not. Obedience is a very specific word. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are, so there's that part that you've got to do. Now, here's the part. Jean brought this out so beautifully in our prayer meeting this morning. Jean and Marley were leading us. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What a scary word. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you and your leaders, incidentally. But isn't it beautiful? Even here, they're appealing to us. Hey, man, you want, you, want to, you want something that's of advantage to you? Here's how to treat your leaders in a way that they're going to be able to lead you with joy, and that's going to be good for you. Why? Because God designed this to be a blessing. It's supposed to be good. Do you see how Scripture hopefully helps us from falling off the horse like a drunk man, one side, the other side, saying, God, we want to find the balance. And here's my fourth and last point this morning. The great shepherd. The great shepherd. We've just read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Well, an account to who? If you must give an account, there must be someone to whom you must give an account. So who are we giving an account to? Who's going to hold us as leaders responsible? A leader is someone who looks over their shoulder and has people following them. That's, that's the easiest definition that I've heard, right? You look over your shoulder, if people are following, you're a leader. So I'm not talking about elders, I'm talking about leaders. God is going to hold us responsible for people who are following us. Let's read 1 Peter 5, verse 1 to 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness to Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. This is what he says. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And here's this introduction of the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the one that we're going to have to stand and say, Lord, you gave me Burn and Prisca for X number of years. This is what we did with them. Right? And have to give account. It's the story of the, of the master giving talents to his servants. And when he comes back from his long trip, he says, Hey, what have you done? I buried it, God. Sobering, eh? But here's the point, all of our Christian leadership, all of our effort, it's not in a vacuum. It's not in a vacuum, it's directly related to the example that we have in Jesus Christ. 
Every piece of shepherding, every piece of leadership that we should be doing is related to looking at Jesus and saying, He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. We are His under-shepherds. Delegated authority. And then Byrne sent me, as I'm picking on you anyway, I might as well carry on. Byrne sent me a beautiful text. We were talking about, he was leading worship, and we were talking about shepherding and leadership and what I was going to speak on. And this Isaiah 40 is so profound. It just shows how it's always been God's heart. Isaiah 40 verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What truly makes us able to lead? One hope, if you want to know what, how we choose leaders, God help us as we work our way through this and as we build into the years to come, as we raise up leaders, it's, it's this. We look at Christ as our example for leadership. We look for men and women who are submitted to Christ. If they cannot submit to Christ, they cannot lead. That's the scriptural teaching. That's the basis. And then Jesus is not only the great shepherd. He's not only the chief shepherd. He's not only the ultimate shepherd. He's also the eternal shepherd. He never stops being shepherd. Look at this Revelation 7. We're going to finish here. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more. This is speaking about heaven one day. This is our glorified state when we are with Him forever and ever and ever. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The eternal shepherd is Jesus. So here's what we've spoken about. Self-leadership. How are you doing? How are you doing? Hopefully God's stirred some challenges in our hearts. We've spoken about remarkably unremarkable character and integrity and how this is the qualifications that we find in Scripture for God's leaders, not giftedness. Guys, we don't come to this text neutral. We don't come to the Bible neutral. We are bent a certain way from our culture. Culture is not celebrating character and integrity for leadership. Then we asked how do we not fall off the horse on one side or the other? And then Jesus, the great shepherd. Can we pray together? And then we're going to take communion. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the beautiful balance that we find. I want to thank you, Lord, even with tired minds and minds that are checking out way too early because it's only the beginning of December. But Father, we, they, we they are and we're fatigued and all of these things. God, but as we come together as a community, thank you that you can speak to us, you can challenge us, you can remind us from your word. Thank you that your word is not um, an advice book. It's not a suggestion. It's actually commands into our lives. God, you, you have things in mind that are good for us and you give us commands to help us get there, to help us see that these things are what you had purposed and planned for our lives. Father, as we come and we take bread together as a community this morning, would you remind us of your great leadership? Would you remind us that you left heaven, that you came to earth, that you were pressed into the form of a man, you didn't account equality with God, something to be grasped at, that you didn't just say, hey, I want you to do it like this. You said, I'm going to show you how. Thank you, God, that as we try to remodel our leadership away from our cultural bent, that, Lord, we can look to you as the one who teaches us how to serve, how to wash feet, how to expend ourselves for the sake of others. Teach us how to do this more and more, Lord. 
Father, and even this morning as we speak on leadership, I know there's many red button issues in the room. People who've been hurt, people who've had over-authoritarian fathers or mothers, people who've been abused in the power of church leadership. God, won't you come and examine our hearts as we come and remind ourselves of what you've done, Jesus, and the forgiveness that you've given us. Would we have grace in our hearts to forgive, to let go, feel it this morning as we come to take communion, the Lord wants to deal quite specifically with some people around the Father, the, the earthly Father. Some of us, some of you have had awful earthly fathers, an awful example, and when you think about God, it's so hard to think about God as a Father and not have all this rush of negative emotion that come into your mind because of your earthly experience. God knows that and I just feel that as you're taking communion this morning, He wants to come and He wants to begin cleaning that part of your heart out. He wants to shine a light on that thing and He wants to start cleaning out some of these hurts and these wounds and this pain. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to pretend it didn't happen. That's not how we deal with things. We can face it head on. We face the facts, but we face the Father. We say, God, would you redefine what it means to be fathered? Would you show me what it means to be loved and spoken words of affirmation spoken over me rather than words of anger and death and brokenness? In Jesus' name.